This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, we're back in 1 Corinthians, and we're in uh, chapter 3. It's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read the passage that we'll cover tonight, starting in chapter 3, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written... He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ Belongs to God. Well, um, chapter 1, verse 10 through 421 is one big unit, all right? And you might remember whenever we started 1 Corinthians, I don't exactly recall when that was. um, You will recall that starting in chapter 1, verse 10 through Verse 17, there is this report of divisions. Paul gets a report from Chloe's people that there are divisions that exist among you. And what's interesting is that as Paul uh, starts to deal with the report of divisions, um, as he starts to remedy this, he doesn't talk about divisions. And the reason he doesn't talk about divisions is because divisions, that was just simply the, uh, what we would just call the presenting problem. That's, that's the problem that's on the surface. But Paul actually knew that there was, there was something underneath that was giving rise to those divisions. And so what Paul does is, as he identifies the fact that divisions have been reported, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, What Paul then does is he doesn't start talking about that. He starts talking about the cross. And in in chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle is, 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 in a sense, getting to the heart of the problem. The Corinthians were, were enamored with Sophia, with wisdom, okay, Um, by the way, not God's wisdom. They were, they were enamored with what they thought was real wisdom. They were also enamored with power, okay? uh, what they considered spiritual power. They were also enamored with the idea of knowledge. And so many of them uh, viewed themselves as, as those who had really arrived spiritually, 
and they attached themselves to certain teachers, and those attachments, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, etc., really had more to do with their pride than with the content of what they were being taught. The Corinthians were, were stuck, in a sense, on the standards of this age. And, and it's just a reminder to us that when God saves somebody, um, they don't automatically lose all the baggage that they come with, right? And so the, the Corinthians had a lot of baggage, a lot of cultural baggage, and they decided just to import a lot of it into their Christian life. And so here are the Corinthians, they think they're mature, they think they're perfect, and they think that they, they are so mature that they've moved beyond the ABCs of the cross. They've moved beyond the, the, the elemental principles of the gospel, and now they are, they are really, really spiritual. And, and Paul's strategy is not just to say, hey, stop it, get along, I mean, that'd have been fine, right? Just knock it off, get along. Although I'm not sure that's always that great motivation, of course, as we know as parents. It's never worked. Stop it, get along. Okay, sure. Uh, I've <laughs> never, never happened to me. Um, but instead of Paul just saying, hey, just get in line and, and, and be humble and do this and do that, what he does is he actually takes them back to the cross and takes them back to the word of the cross and in essence, basically says, you, you, you want to know what wisdom is? You want to know what power is? This stuff that you love so much? The wisdom and power of God are found in the cross, right? And so in 118 to 25, or 25, sorry. So you have the cross of Christ, which is the wisdom and the power of God. Now, from the world's perspective, the cross is both foolish and weak, all right? So the message of the cross by the world standards is foolish and weak. It's a stumbling block, right, to the Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. Um, it is, uh, to, for somebody to be crucified, that was the ultimate of humiliation, the ultimate display of human weakness and vulnerability. And yet what Paul says is, listen, the cross is actually the wisdom and the power of God, Okay? Then, as he's, he wants to carry them along, he wants to, in a sense, reset their, um, reset their hearts back on the gospel. And so then, in 1, 26 to 31, he talks about how the divine calling, which they had experienced, was also the wisdom and power of God. So not only is it the message of the cross that's the wisdom and power of God, but God, as he uses that message to draw people to himself, that also is the demonstration of the wisdom and the power of God. In fact, those saved by the cross are seen through the world's eyes as foolish and weak. Now, here, here's, the, here's the sad irony of the Corinthians, is that the gospel actually exposes our innate foolishness, and the gospel exposes our innate weakness, and then it is through that message that the weak and the foolish of the world are saved, right? Then they're perceived to be foolish and weak by the world, but what they've come to realize is that power and wisdom are in God. And the Corinthians had completely forgotten that. 
Paul actually has to say, remember your calling, brethren. There weren't many mighty among you. There weren't many well-born or noble. You know, God has, God has chosen the nothings and the nobodies to confuse the somethings and the somebodies. You've forgotten that. Then, as he wraps this section up, 2, 1 to 5, this is the preaching of the cross that's the wisdom and the power of God. So you've got to keep in mind. So here's, here's the Corinthians, first century Greco-Roman world. What is, um, they, they didn't go to the movies, all right? They didn't, uh, they didn't watch Netflix. They didn't, the, the, actually what they did is they would go to the theater, watch drama, or they would go and listen to orators who would try to persuade them with their rhetoric. That was entertainment. And they valued that. And Paul basically tells them, you have to realize that uh, what you really love now and what you really have this hankering after now, this polished oratorical worldly Sophia that comes in polished words of wisdom, you have to understand that when I came to you, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I did that for a reason. I didn't come to you with these polished wise words. If, if that's how I would have preached the gospel to you, then your faith would end up resting on my eloquence. <laughs> I'll tell you, I know I say this probably every time we talk about this. This is such a huge lesson for the church. Because we think that if we can just impress the world, that they will believe. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And, and, and so... When the church tries to impress the world, all the church does is mimics the world and then don't, they, they don't even do a very good job of it. Have you ever seen a Christian movie? <laughs> now, back in the 70s, they were really awful. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're maybe a little better now. But, I mean, we, we always think that we can just impress by doing something like the, the world does. And Paul says basically this, I, when I was among you, you know what I did? I preached a crucified Christ in a crucified style, and that was the demonstration of the Spirit of God and of the power of God, Right? And that power that came and brought conviction and that power that came and brought new birth, it's that power that your faith rests on, not on the slick words of men. And so this is what Paul is aiming at. He's reminding them, he's trying to get them to reorient themselves back to the cross, back to the gospel. And just, just a reminder, you don't get past the gospel, it is not like the gospel is kindergarten and you're aiming for some sort of graduate studies. The gospel is not something you grow beyond. The gospel is something you grow deeper and deeper and deeper into. You get past the gospel, you're in trouble. So then Paul, there's a turning point in Paul's argument, chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. And... Um, the, the, the turning point is he's now going to start to um, pick up on the Corinthian buzzwords. And what he's going to do, he's going to pick up on words like wisdom, mature, spiritual. And um, what he's going to do is he's going to take those words that have become so important to the Corinthians, and he's going to see as his task to actually help reclaim those words, right? Reclaim those words 
by redefining them in light of the gospel. And so he talks about the origin of wisdom, 2, 6 through 9. And, of course, wisdom in Corinthians, always Christ and him crucified. Then what's the revelation of wisdom? And so you have to realize the, the, uh, the Corinthians were these hyper-spiritual, super-spiritual, uh, mystical, you know, uh, uh, just driven by experience kind of Christians. I'm sure you've never met anybody like that. And Paul just wants to make it clear. You know how the Holy Spirit reveals wisdom? He reveals wisdom when he reveals Christ, right? And then the recipients of the wisdom. And this is, this is so funny because when we covered this part, um, I remember reading in, uh, in Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee actually is, um, was raised in a traditional Pentecostal home, one of the, really one of the best New Testament scholars um, over the last 25, 30 years or so. And, um, and Fee makes a great observation about the, the, the end of this section where he says, ironically, what happens is most people read this in a way in which Paul was actually trying to prove the contrary. What is real maturity? What is true spirituality? Well, it's not this, it's not this super spiritual mentality of somebody that's reached the second or third or fourth echelon of, uh, of perfection. It's simply having the mind of Christ. And if you have the spirit, you have the mind of Christ. There's only two kinds of people in this world. There's the natural man. He doesn't understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. That is, they're discerned by the spirit. And then there are those who actually are spiritual. That is, they have the spirit. They have the mind of Christ. That's the great dividing line between men. The Corinthians wanted to make a dividing line between themselves and everybody else, all the low-level, entry-level Christians. It's always sort of a dangerous thing, isn't it? Set up a little... Um, have and have not category within the church based on whether you spoke in tongues or whether you could prophesy or whether you could blow on somebody and knock them down or something like that. Okay. So then Paul gets to chapter 3. When Paul gets to chapter 3, he, he really starts getting into some um, sort of like in-your-face exhortation. I wanted to talk to you like mature people. But instead, I have to talk to you like your little tiny babies, okay? And uh, Paul is actually uh, now addressing the divisiveness in the Corinthian assembly, and he tells them that they're babies, they need to grow up. And then 5 through 9 in chapter 3, he tells them, here's the true identity of, of, of God's servants. So you want, to, you want to elevate God's servants in such a way that really all you're doing is elevating yourself. You know, it's, it's kind of funny the, the way that we, we do this. I, I, I catch myself doing this. I'll say something about maybe somebody that I really enjoyed reading and then make some sort of superlative comment about one of the, one of the most brilliant minds of, of 2,000 years of church history. And, of course, you know what that means. Well, if I'm reading the most brilliant mind in the last 2,000 years of church history, that must mean, at least de facto, that I am uh, at least a partially brilliant mind for having enough brilliance to read the most brilliant. Right? 
So this is subtle forms of pride, right? And so here's the Corinthians, and uh, their elevation of these teachers was really not so much the elevation of the teachers, it was the elevation of themselves, right? And so Paul says, here, here's what I want you to know about God's servants, those that you hold in this incredible high esteem. And now, does Paul think that you should esteem God's servants? And the answer is yes, but within reason, right? So the Corinthians had him elevated way up here. And Paul says, you know, at the end of the day, here's, here's what we are. We're, we're plow boys and water boys, I planted. Here, here's, here's the glory of, of what I did. Grabbed seed and threw it on the ground. Apollos watered. Here's the, here's the glory of the mighty Apollos, is that he came and just watered. God caused it to grow, right? This is, this is his whole point, is so the, the purpose of the one who sows and the one who waters is actually the same, although they both will be accountable to God for their ministry, for their labor. The fact is, is that they're both working for the same purpose and the one who causes all things to grow is God. So why in the world are you so hung up on, on I follow this guy and I follow that guy and uh, my goodness, I'm just so glad Twitter didn't exist in Paul's day. This would have been a real mess, right? And so, then he gets to chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, and his point is going to be very simple, and that is all true laborers in the gospel only build on Christ. That's, that is the litmus test. Are they building on Christ? All laborers are going to have their, their labor um, tested by fire. And what we're going to find out on that day is that they're going to be those who built with gold, silver, and precious stones. Their work is going to last. And then there are going to be others who built with wood, hay, and stubble. Their work is going to be consumed, although they themselves will be saved as though by fire. And then Paul says on that day there's going to be reward and there's going to be loss. And so his exhortation to the Corinthians, therefore, is something like this. You you better have a, a very good understanding of the standards by which you let people build into the church. Because it's going to be tested. Then chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, go ahead and look at that since it's right next to our passage. This is Paul's actual warning to this, this concluding section. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So Paul concludes this section with a, with a solemn threat to church records. I think I quoted to you A.T. Robertson's famous rendering of this, church wreckers God will wreck. So church wrecking, of course, can come from false teachers, right? False teachers can come in and and ruin a church, right? Clearly. But but you know the, the, the biggest danger to the health and welfare of the church is not the false teachers coming from outside, it's actually the boastful, arrogant, super-spiritual bullies that are inside. 
By the way, they're the ones that usually open the door for false teachers. And so Paul is warning, listen, don't, don't, don't ruin the church. A guy that I know, um, he was in a tough, tough church situation. And um, it's one of the things I'm so thankful for. I think I mentioned, I can't remember, maybe last week or sometime. You, you know, you're up at a, uh, like the fire conference and you're there with other pastors and you just hear how, how tough sometimes church life can be. And um, a friend of mine um, was on sabbatical and comes back and has his first elders meeting and finds out that while he was on sabbatical, the other elders went and made all these kinds of changes without his knowledge or contribution. And he's sitting there thinking, uh, I, th- I thought we were part of a team. All of a sudden, he now feels like everything is, is, is being undermined. And I have no doubt that uh, unless God shows incredible grace in a situation like that and really helps some people come to repentance, then this church will be fractured and fragmented, right? And it happens all the time. And so we... we um, we don't think about it, though, the same way the apostle does. Paul says, you don't go around wrecking churches. You're the temple of God. In other words, here's why you don't wreck churches. Think about what the church is. It's the temple of God. The spirit of God actually dwells inside of you. You're the dwelling place of God. You, you don't go vandalizing the dwelling place of God. You don't go backbiting, you don't go gossiping, you don't spread false teaching, you don't spread discord among the brethren, you don't do stuff that's going to hurt the church. Put it this way, those who hurt the church, God's going to hurt. And so with that, he then says, verse 18, let no man deceive himself. Now, as we, as we come to this section, I, I actually, it was actually pointed out to me that um, 3.18, which we started our reading, through 4.5 actually forms a pretty nice unit of, of bringing two themes together that Paul has already talked about. In other words, uh, 3.18 to 23 and 4.1 to 5 end up recapping two themes that Paul's already discussed. One is how you need to think about yourself. Paul's going to revisit themes like wisdom and folly. How do you think about yourself in light of that? And then he's going to talk about how do you think about God's servants? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is how you should consider yourself. This is how you should consider God's servants. And so in one sense, 3, 18 to 23 is a recap of 1, 18 to 2, 5. And then... Uh, 4, 1 to 5 is a recap of 2, 6 through 3, 17. Paul actually thinks it's really important that we have a good understanding of who we are and that we have a good understanding of who God's servants are. I mean, just think about how many things can go wrong 
when you mess up on one of those two or both. So, verse 18, the importance of accurate self-perception. You like that? The importance of accurate self-perception. How many of us here would say, I have a totally accurate view of myself? (laughs) I'm thankful nobody raised their hand. Maybe you were tempted to. Um, you understand self-deception is, is, is the disease of the human heart, right? Self-deception is the disease of the human heart. And Paul says, it's really fantastic, let no man deceive himself. Now, I've pointed this out before, and that is, this is, this is a third-person imperative. This is actually a command, although it doesn't sound like a command to us, let no man deceive himself. Um, So some translations, what they do is they shift from the third person, let no man, to the second person in terms of you, right? So for instance, New English translation, it's pretty good, guard against self-deception. Each of you, guard against self-deception. Now, what's, what's interesting to me is that when you, when you trace the argument like we just did, Paul is not saying, watch out and don't be deceived by others. Now, there are times where Paul warns against being deceived by others, right? You think, of, for instance, of like uh, Ephesians 4, being deceived by the trickery of men, being blown about by every wind of doctrine. But that's not what he's concerned about here. What he's concerned about is that the Corinthians are not deceiving themselves. And so, who is he talking to here? He's talking to people who thought they were wise. He's talking to people who thought they were mature. He's talking to people who thought they were spiritual. Garland, uh, one of the commentators, actually suggests that, that maybe those who think they're building with gold, silver, and precious stones... You know, it's kind of funny. Whenever we have a, an elevated view of ourselves, we, we, we almost always think that we're just right. And that any correction that, that, that comes must not apply to me. It applies to those other people that aren't nearly as smart as me. It's kind of interesting because we... We really do think that if we could just be in control of the world for about five minutes, we could straighten everything out. Isn't that true, especially like um, during uh, campaign season, election cycles, right? Every one of us here, well, almost every one of us here, probably thinks of ourselves as a politically astute, right-on person. If, if, I could just, if I could just simply talk some sense to the Democrats, we'd have this whole thing settled. Okay. Right. We start to think like this. We start to think that we're the smartest guy in the room. We begin to think that when it comes to theology, I must be the smartest guy in the room. You know, those, those poor people that, you know, all they do is just read their Bible. You know? They're not all, you know, Mr. Theology fancy pants like me. 
And so we can start to have these elevated views of ourselves. And then what happens is if, if I view myself as, as a spiritually mature person, and I look at you as just a few steps below, what is that going to look like? You ever going to be able to teach me anything? Am I ever going to be able to be corrected? No. And so Paul says, you need to be careful. You who think you're so wise, you who think you're so mature, you who think that you are so spiritual. You know, the, the fact is, is that we can, we can learn from all kinds of people, can't we? We can even learn from people that don't even agree with us. That's a novel idea. Learn from somebody that doesn't agree with you. Now, Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks he is wise in this age, if anyone thinks. By the way, Paul's going to say this uh, two more times, if anyone thinks. Eight, two. If anyone thinks he has knowledge. And then... 1437, if anyone thinks he is spiritual, right? So you, you, you get what Paul's doing, right? If anyone thinks he is wise, notice the little, this little attachment in this age, in this age. I love the way that Gordon Fee does this. He says, the opening salvo is irony once again. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age. And then Fee says, of course they do. That is quite the point. (laughs) He's not asking them and maybe they might not think that they're wise according to this age. And so wise, of course. Now, does Paul think it's important to be wise? It's incredibly important to be wise, as long as you're wise in the way that God says you should be wise. And what is wisdom for God? Wisdom is believing in the crucified, resurrected Jesus. That's the heart of wisdom. God has made Christ to become wisdom for us. Right? The Corinthians don't see it that way. They look at this, at this Sophia, this wisdom as, as this esoteric knowledge and, uh, and this, the uh, deep, deep thoughts into the secret things of God. And Paul's like, no, no, no. Wisdom is just believing in Jesus and understanding what he did on the cross. That's wisdom. And so Paul says, so if anyone thinks they're wise, and of course you think you're wise, but notice, according to this age. Now, Paul's already used this language too. And what is it about this age? You see this actually in chapter 2, I think, verses 6 and 8. So you have the rulers of this age, right? Um, The thing about this age is that it's just passing away, right? It's temporary. It's fading. And by the way, it's under God's condemnation, So this age, which is temporary and passing away under judgment, this ends up being the standard by which the Corinthians think they're wise? Now, here's here's my suspicion. I don't think that the Corinthians thought about this age in the same way that Paul thought about this age. 
Very possibly, when the Corinthians thought about this age, they had an overly spiritualized eschatology, if you will, in a sense, thinking um, that more has happened in the already than has already happened. Does that make sense? So for those of you who have no clue what what I just said, because it didn't sound very clear to me, you have this age... And you have the age to come, right? Okay. This age, age to come. Okay. First time I did this years and years ago, Ashley came up with a little uh, eschatology dance. Um, and how, anyway, so this age and the age to come. So this age is marked by sin, it's marked by death, it's marked by judgment, right? And, and then you have the age to come. Well, here's the wonder and beauty of the Christian life is that through the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the age to come has invaded this present age. So we live in this overlap, this tension between the already and the not yet. All right? This should be like... Old hat to you guys now, because we've done this a hundred times, right? A thousand times. And so you have this tension of already, not yet. Well, one of the problems is that if you think more of the not yet has come into the already, then you may think your best life is now. If you have, if you have a view that, that the stuff that is reserved for the not yet has already become yours right now, then you might be confused by suffering. You might be confused by affliction and trials. And so this is sometimes what theologians call an over-realized or an over-spiritualized eschatology, expecting too much of the not yet right now. So right now, there's tension, there's conflict. Has has God done wonderful things for us right now in this present age? And the answer is yes. But has he done it all for us right now? And the answer is no. We're still awaiting something else. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Could you imagine if this just was it? Wow. Now... I think it's really possible, especially when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, that the Corinthians had an idea that so much of the not yet was already present with them in this right now, and, or already. And so when, when they say wisdom according to this world or according to this age, I think they had a much different view than the way Paul sees it. Paul sees this age as passing away. It's condemned. It's slated for judgment. And you think this is the standard for wisdom? You want to go to the University of Corinth for the standard of wisdom? You want to go to the Rhetoricians Guild for the standard of wisdom? You want to rely upon Corinthian sophistry for the standard of wisdom? You give me a break. And so Paul says, if anyone thinks he is wise in this age, here's, here's my advice. Let him become a fool so that he might become wise. 
This will not gain you academic credibility with modern scholarship. I was talking to Bruce Ware. One of the things that, that ruins Christian seminaries and colleges is this longing for the world's approval of our academic abilities. It's what ruined Fuller Seminary. A desire of academic reputation, credibility. I think Paul would say, you know, if you're going to be really wise according to God's standards, you need to become a fool. What that means is the world's going to look at you like you're an idiot. And that's okay. By the way, you do know that the world thinks that people that would sit and listen to Bible teaching and believe in a crucified Jesus and a resurrected Lord and a coming age that, that, that we are idiots, right? You understand that, okay? Um, I have all the respect in the world for apologetics, defending the faith, and it's important, but the fact is, is the world is always going to look at us as believing something stupid. Paul says, you, you want to be wise? <sighs> become a fool. If you become a fool, then you'd be... So you're like, what is Paul talking about? Do I, do I have to go and get a lobotomy in order to be wise? And the answer is no, because real wisdom comes in embracing the foolishness of the cross. That's what this is all coming back to. Real wisdom is rooted in embracing the foolishness of the cross. So the world looks at the cross, that's foolishness, that's ridiculous. Uh, a, A crucified deity for the sins of his people, give me a break. And God looks at the world's wisdom as utter foolishness because it really truly is. And Paul's basically saying, hey, you need to choose between how you're going to be wise. And if you're, going to be, if you're going to choose to be wise in the way God says you need to be wise, then you need to become a fool by the world's standards. Then he says, for the, verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written. And then he quotes two texts. Okay? So the principle is for the wisdom of this world's foolishness before God. Okay? So what, what, what is actually the world's Wisdom. Well, Paul's already gone through this in, in chapter 1, 18 through 30. The, the world's wisdom does this. The world's wisdom values supremely human knowledge over God's knowledge. Human strength. Human ability. Well-born. Or famous. Think about who the world values today people that can shoot baskets think about how stupid that is now to hit a 96 mile an hour fastball that's something the world values the somethings and the somebodies and human reasons the ultimate standard for absolutely everything and God says, all that stuff before me is utter foolishness. 
I turn all those values just right upside down on their head. Then he quotes two passages. Interesting, we'll cover these very quickly. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Do you know who said that? You might notice in your margin, it's Job 5.13. But you know who said it? A guy by the name of Eliphaz, who thought he was really smart and thought he was way smarter than Job. And in fact, kind of thought he was smarter than God. And what Eliphaz is saying is that God catches the crafty with their own craftiness. It is funny the way that happens, by the way, is it not? So the ones who think that they're so cunning with God, God uses their own craftiness to ensnare them. And by the way, that's exactly what happens to Eliphaz by the the end of the book of Job. The people who think they're so smart, so clever, so cunning, God says, well, all right, I'll show you. I'll show you clever. I'm going to take your cleverness and use it to trap you. You know, this is, ends up being just simply true of atheistic worldviews. When you stop and think about it, people try to come up with all these clever arguments about God and, and try to come up with all of these, these, these clever um, syllogisms and, and um, you know, uh, so at the end of the month, I'm going to be down at, at, uh, at Vegas doing an apologetics thing with Robert Briggs and, and um, I get the problem of evil. Of course, you know, just a simple little subject, the problem of evil. Notice it's not a problem of evil. It's the problem of evil. Well, you know, what? Just uh, th- this came to me. And I, told, I think I told Vic. I woke up the other morning, about 2 or 3 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, I've got to write this down. I didn't write it down, but I did remember it. Problem of evil. Guess what? If you're an atheist, there is no problem of evil. Right? Yet, atheists will tell you, for instance, that the problem of evil is the biggest objection to the existence of God. And I say, without the existence of God, there is no problem of evil. One, if you do away with God, then all of a sudden you, do, you no longer have transcendent moral categories of good and evil. You certainly can't complain about natural evil. You can't complain about a hurricane taking the lives of uh, hundreds of people or a tsunami of hundreds of thousands of people because you're living in a world of chance. You're living in a world of just, just random events that are just, that are just carried along by the forces of nature. You can't complain about that. Nor can you complain, nor can you complain about moral evil. That is evil things that people do to other people. Because at the end of the day, if there's no God, then basically a bad person really isn't necessarily a bad person. He's just a person whose neutrons and electrons aren't working right and whose synapses are screwed up some way. You know, he's, he's a bag of gas in a three-piece suit and his, and, and his gases are malfunctioning. You can't blame him for that. So you deny, so all of a sudden the cleverness of the clever ends up catching them, right? This is why... There are times where you answer a fool according to his folly, 
so that he will not be wise in his own eyes. There are other times that you do not answer a fool in his folly, lest you become like him. Well, the next text is Psalm 9411, pretty straightforward, right? The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they're useless. In other words, all Paul's saying is, you know, Psalm 9411 just basically says, God knows how stupid you are. So the one who's wise forgets that there's only one who already knows and has already judged their wisdom as folly. And so the wise of this age think that they're so much smarter than God. It's just never true. Never true. 21 to 23, the folly of boasting in men. So here's Paul's conclusion. So then... Let no one boast in men. Now, Paul's already said, if you're going to boast, boast how? In the Lord. Don't boast in men. You You don't go around going, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm really spiritual. I'm of Christ. Paul says, don't go around boasting like that. And then he says something that I, this is so unexpected. To me, it's just, what Paul says next is so unexpected. So then, don't boast in men. Men are limited. Men are finite. Men are sinful. Men are fallen. And so don't go boasting in men. And then he says, for all things are yours. That's surprising to me. I would think he would say something like this. Don't boast in men, that's stupid. Don't boast in men, that's carnal. Don't boast in men, don't you get it by now? I mean, he could have said, he could have said so many different things. And instead he says, don't boast in men because everything is yours. Huh? I love this. Don Garland says, the philosophers appealed to this phrase, all things are yours to affirm their self-sufficiency and their mastery over all circumstances. He says, Paul uses it, however, to confirm the Christian's complete dependency upon God. Now, you, you got to follow this, and this I know it's a little late and, and you're tired, but for the super-spiritualized Corinthians, with all of their, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm so smart, I'm so mature, they were actually, Paul saying, you're selling yourself short. This is a twist in the argument that I'm not exactly expecting at this point. And in essence, you don't boast in men because everything belongs to you. In a sense, Paul saying, what God has for you is so much bigger than what you think you've obtained for yourself. And then he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Now, you know what Paul's done at this point, right? He's taken their boasting, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and he's absolutely turned it on its head. So, I belong to Paul. And he's like, no, Paul belongs to you. I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. No, they belong to you. It's almost as if I'm of Paul. Paul says, ha ha, that's not true. I belong to you. 
How can that be? It's very simple. Christ is Lord. Christ is the head of the church. And he's given us, all of us, to you. You don't belong to us as followers. We belong to you as servants. And then he really gets tricky with us here. Whether the world or life or death or things present or things coming, all things are yours. What in the world is he talking about? Actually, I think, I think Paul just is getting excited. The, the Corinthians had absolutely sold themselves short on what belonged to them. And now Paul says, not only does Paul and Apollos and Cephas belong to you, but the world belongs to you and life belongs to you and death belongs to you and things present belong to you and things future belong to you. Gordon Fee makes this great observation. He says, these five things, world, life, death, things present, things coming, are the ultimate tyrannies of human existence to which people are enslaved. Enslaved to the world, enslaved to their life, enslaved to the fear of death, enslaved to the, to the present, enslaved to, to the uncertainties of the future. And what, what Paul turns around and says is because of Christ's death and because of Christ's resurrection, even these tyrannies are now yours. These tyrannies are now subject to you. And then he's, all things are yours. So we've got these great bookends. Now here's, here's the amazing thing about this. The Corinthians really thought that they were bragging about something. And Paul says, you haven't even begun to understand what God has provided for you and done for you and what belongs to you. You have these little petty carnal divisive attachments and you are so silly. God's given us to you, not vice versa. Reminded me of the prosperity gospel today. Right? Started thinking about this. Because this is a little harder. This, this section is a little harder. But I was, I was thinking about the way that it applies to the prosperity gospel. Here's, here's the problem with the prosperity gospel. You ready? I think this is in the spirit of this passage. The health and wealth prosperity gospel simply aims too low. Here's, here's God's will for your life. That you drive a Mercedes Benz. Really? Here's God's, here's God's will for your life. That you never catch a cold. What mundane garbage. Prosperity gospel wants to sell people on something that's way, way, way too low. The heritage of the prosperity gospel is way too small. It wants to claim healing, but in Christ's death, we have eternal life. It wants to claim wealth, but in Christ, we already have everything. And even if you are the poorest of paupers, if you have Christ, you have everything. Right? And so Paul is, I think Paul, I think Paul would just go nuts today. He'd probably think, what, did the Corinthians get reincarnated or what? You're aiming too low, Corinthians. You're aiming way too low. And here's why everything is yours. It's not because 
you are marvelous, majestic, mighty, awesome people. It's because you're Christ's. Here's why, why, here's why everything is yours. You belong to Christ. If we belong to Christ, and Christ is Lord of all, and he belongs to God, what could we possibly ever need that we don't already have? Right? And then Paul says this, and Christ is God's. Wow. Now, in a sense, think about this. Here is the glue of true unity. So on the one hand, you've got these petty, carnal, little Corinthians who are like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. No, he's mine. No, he's mine. And then Paul says, listen, you're acting like little infants that are fighting over rattles and, 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 and Fisher Price toys. And what you have to understand is that this all belongs to you because you belong to Christ. Quit acting like little infants and grow up and realize what really does belong to you. And then stop and think about this. The very Christ to whom you belong, he belongs to God. Therefore, what we have, we all have in him. And Thistleton makes this observation, which is really interesting. He says this phrase, and Christ belongs to God. Now, that's not saying that Christ is somehow a subordinate to God in the sense of, of sort of an Arianism, right? I think he's talking about what happens in the incarnation, but be that as it may, even Christ, Thistleton says, does not choose exemption from the principle that God assigns to each his calling. And so in other words, what Paul's doing is he's saying, listen, you have more than you could ever imagine. But just as sure as you belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God. And what did Christ do? He submitted himself to his father. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He actually exemplifies the very opposite of what you are trying to do. He exemplifies one who for the sake of love and for the sake of the good of others actually emptied himself and didn't insist on his own rights. Didn't insist on being the best. He didn't insist on being the most spiritual. He didn't insist. He he didn't have to. He was all those things and more. He didn't have to insist on it, but he emptied himself. He had a role, and he fulfilled that role gladly. He belongs to God. You belong to him. (laughs) Act like it. Right? Act like it. You belong to him. Well, what a great passage. It's really fun to be back in 1 Corinthians. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this marvelous book. And we thank you for the truth here. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us to have honest self-evaluation of our own selves in your sight. We pray that you'd help us not to be wise in our own eyes, let alone the standards of this world. 
And we pray, Father, that you would remind us that we have everything because we have Christ. Lord, what a glorious truth. What a glorious truth. If I have Christ, I have everything. We pray, Father, that we would live like it. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.